Welcome everyone. Wow, how nice it is to see all of you and the bike community of Los Angeles. I'm thrilled to have you all. I want to thank several people who have helped make this happen. First and foremost, Jimmy Lizama. Thank you, Jimmy. As most of you know, and if some of you don't, Jimmy is not only the founder of the Bicycle Kitchen and Relampical Wheelery, but also of Reciclos, which he is standing in front of right now, Reciclos. And this is an example of the kind of cargo bike Jimmy has been involved in building. So I also want to thank James. James, where are you? Oh, there you are, James. Help set up. And Niels, where's Niels? There he is. Make the sound happen for us today. So the Los Angeles Eco Village, we are celebrating our 30th year on the ground in this location. So that said, the other person that deserves great big thank you is Nick. Nick, where are you? Nick, where are you? We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Nick, who was going to be in town and is the founder of the Bike Talk program, as you all know. And I'm going to let Nick take over here for a few minutes. Nick has some things he wants to give away. All right. Well, the first thing I want to give away is this Lifetime Achievement Award in supporting bike advocacy. Because Loa's co-founded Eco Village, Eco Village is the spawning ground for Bike Kitchen with Jimmy and also Eco Villagers were there for the founding of LACBC, which is now Bike LA, which Eli represents here as the executive director, and also Ciclavia. So between Ciclavia, Bike Kitchen, and Bike LA, I can't think of many more important bike institutions in Los Angeles, and they all kind of had their beginnings here. So. Like, if it's a wonderful life in the movie, if Lois never existed, what would be different about the bike movement in LA? Who knows? And now, we have three people who are all bike LA related. And I'm the moderator, John Yi. So my name is John Yi. I'm the executive director for Los Angeles Walk, so I'm a bit of a novelty here. I'm a pedestrian advocate, but I feel a lot of things that we go through, struggle with, with the built environment, transportation, are very similar to what I think bicyclists go through. So. Happy to share my perspective. My name is Eli Akira Kaufman, and as Nick shared, I'm the executive director of Bike LA, formerly LACBC. So it's nice to see so many familiar faces. I've been in the role for about five years. I've been a member of LACBC Bike LA for about 10, and I'm just really interested in the intersection between affordable housing and transportation justice, and really excited to hear about what your interests are and what's keeping you up at night and what your hopes are for the future of LA. And then also to learn more about Eco Village, because frankly, this is such a beginnings of so much of the movement as Nick shared. I'd like to learn more about this space and why it's been such a hotbed for activity and activism. So just really honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi everybody, my name is Josh Cohen. I am a personal injury attorney and I specialize in representing injured, vulnerable road users. I have a background in environmental law. I'm primarily interested in what I do because I think that we need to get cars off the road and we need to get people moving safely without cars. LA is the epicenter of that entire tension and I've been involved in several nonprofits dedicated to promoting those issues and honored to be here 
and this is a really cool spot. And to think that we're here having this conversation in a city which arguably is one of the most materialistic cities, you know, end stage capitalism is pretty cool. So thanks for having me here. My name is Jimmy Lazama, and I want to thank everybody for putting this together. I won't go too far into the history, but I've been doing the bike thing for a very long time. I'm also a resident of this specific neighborhood here. I went to Virgil Middle School, I went to Belmont High School, and my dad had a car growing up. He drove a lot, but one of his primary ways of getting around going to work was bicycle. So I think early on for me, it was very instilled that bicycle was a way to have good, cheap transportation. I myself never owned a car. I've had a license for a little bit and used it one or twice, but that was as far as that went. But I've been able to live my life entirely here in LA without a car, and it's been kind of wonderful. Because I haven't had a car, and my consciousness has been really specific around walking, biking, and public transportation always. And I gotta say that I feel as someone like that, that I've got actually more access to the goodness of life in our city. I do wish Adonia was here. Adonia Lugo, who's done a lot of good work in the city around equity, around transportation. And I bring it up because women have been a big part of the bicycle movement in LA. And that strong voice is really needed in all of our spaces, whether it's bicycles or anywhere else. So in spirit, I'm definitely holding something here for Adonia. So I'll go into other stuff later on, but just wanted to introduce myself and we'll see where the conversation flows. Yeah, it would have been great to have her putting this together, find out that she brought the idea of Cyclovia here from Bogota. With her then partner, Bobby Gatta. With Bobby Gatta, who I remember very well. Yeah. So I did want to ground it in Ecovillage just by saying Ecovillage started in 93, co-founded by Lois. In those 30 years, we know three things that happened, but what has happened in bike advocacy in that time, in 30 years? Were you active in 93? <laughs> I was walking home in 93 because civil unrest was happening in our city and so Rodney King was very much a huge reality and so that was kind of like the consciousness but even then yeah we were biking we were walking yeah and I remember you in the kitchen when the bike kitchen was in the kitchen <laughs> that was cool so the question is how has bike advocacy from what you know you're all very well informed changed and evolved in those 30 years and then we're going to talk about where we need to go I do want to start because there's a few things that maybe aren't always connected. There's unsung heroes on many levels in our city around the bicycle thing. And I'll start with my dad. My dad biked from Koreatown to Beverly Hills for like a good part of 20 years on his bicycle at 4.30 in the morning to be working at 5.30 in the morning, right? My dad's story is that story of a lot of people here in this city, a lot of immigrant riders, a lot of day laborers who just get around by bicycle and they're out there super early, super late, putting a lot of miles in, but they're not seen as a bicycle community in a sense, but they're the ones who are riding before anybody else is calling it advocacy, before anybody else is calling it transportation, they were actually doing it. There's also communities that we don't totally acknowledge that were also in South LA, East LA, the valley, these are vast places so we don't connect the dots to the history of the bicycle movement because we didn't have everybody under a ribbon that said advocacy at that point. In fact, there's a good article called Invisible Riders that was put out by one of the old Bicycle Kitchen cooks, Aaron Salinger, and Dan Copel from Bicycle Magazine who documented the work of people just getting around by bicycle to go for work and then go out to party at night with those bicycles. They were actually working. The other group I think that is actually really important to me, very, very close to my heart, are the bike messengers. 
I think that for me, I learned how to be brave on a bicycle in LA by being a bike messenger. We at points rode bikes with no brakes, fixed gear, and there was kind of a warrior element to that. It's not a sustainable one, but it was one that at least helped me feel very grounded to be able to be one of the people up front and not be afraid of cars or car culture. And I really do thank bike messengers in LA, especially in LA, because LA is not a bike city, LA is not a walk city, LA has been a car city for over a century. So to have a culture come out and say, you know what, no, actually this is better, this is more awesome, to me was really wonderful, and I can't thank them and all the other messengers around the world that I've met who really put themselves in the line, literally, for bicycles. So, when we started the LA County Bicycle Coalition, there was a thing called the Bike Expo down at the Convention Center. And it was a very specific culture, in my experience at least. I was one of very few people of color, and it was mostly white men in like REI clothing who had Sierra Club memberships, and they were pushing bicycle advocacy. And that was my experience coming into advocacy, and it wasn't quite gelling for me, because that's not where I come from, that's not what I see as environmentalism, and that's not what actually affected my life. So it was a very strange place to be, and often when I was young then, coming into those spaces, I was definitely looked down upon. I was not exactly welcomed, as if I had something to contribute. And so it's a funny place to begin advocacy for me, but I stuck it out and I had really wonderful mentors along the way, and through our collective movement, we were able to create spaces like the Bicycle Kitchen that was more street, that was more from the people. But that for me was the beginning for me of what advocacy kind of looked like, and I'm glad that it's so changing to a much more inclusive, much more radical, and much more representative way to look at advocacy. And it's not even about bicycles anymore, really. It's about equity, but I'll stop there. So I'll take this question on the pedestrian question. I can't really speak too much on the bicycle movement, but I feel like, again, there's a lot of parallels between pedestrians and bicyclists. So Los Angeles Walks, we've been around for over 25 years now as a pedestrian advocacy nonprofit. And I gotta say, over the 25 years, I'm the third executive director, so I wasn't the one to start it, but the stories I hear, and especially the history of our work, there definitely has been an evolution of how people perceive pedestrian access. I think more and more, things are changing. I think right now, there is an existential question I think a lot of Angelinos are facing is, what is the future of our city? We double down on this car-centric, single-family home sort of layout where we're just sprawling out, leading to environmental dangers. Or do we rethink ourselves as an urban environment? What does that mean and how does that look like distinctly in Los Angeles? Not New York City, Chicago, but Los Angeles. And for me, I enjoy that question because at the root of it is pedestrianism. Are you able to get somewhere safely, with dignity, with safety, without costing your wallet or your body? And I think it's the same when you talk about bicyclists. And to answer the question, things are definitely changing. I live in Koreatown, not five minutes from here. And it's interesting, I do a lot of door knocking and GOTV work, and you can go to the wealthiest apartments in Cape Town, to the most low-income apartments in Cape Town, and usually they're full of Koreans, but all their cars are black Lexus or Mercedes. Because it's a social status, right? Having a car that's expensive, that looks nice, despite your income, is a sign of success for a lot of immigrants in Los Angeles. And so decoupling that kind of culture is difficult, but I feel like the younger generations are into that. They're into public transit. I think when it comes to car ownership or even driver's license, rates have gotten down. And one does not even have to look too far to find good examples. It's interesting, a lot of Koreans go visit back to Seoul, see amazing public buses, amazing transit systems that come back here and totally just slide right back into the car culture. But again, I think things are changing. Uh, Koreatown, just as an example, is a great story. You have transit that's running through it. We have the Purple Line being extended. 
bus lines run through Cape Town, north, south, east, west. And so, you know, I think it takes communities like this, like the Eco Village, to show that example, to show that vision, um, and how we can change cultures and norms. But I think we're doing that. So I guess, again, to summarize what I'm saying to answer the question is, I think things are changing, but it takes advocates like us, cultures like this, that exude that spirit into the city. And so I'm glad to be here with you all. So hard to follow these two guys. Thanks, Jimmy. Again, my name is Eli Akira Kaufman. I got divorced. That's really how I got started in this whole space. I was in a bad relationship. I had a kid. I was living in LA. I was trying to connect with my son and with this region and be a more active participant in making LA a healthier, happier, more livable, more equitable, more affordable place, being on a single family income at that point. And the bicycle in many ways saved my relationship with my son, who's now 15, and just totally changed my whole approach to the city and to the region. I met some of my closest friends, co-parents, co-family through this whole movement. And so one of the first things that I did was I got connected to LACBC at the time, started doing their community classes, started doing some of their bike safety training classes, started taking my kid out for bike rides. And the thing that really became clear to me was that not only was the culture fractured and not really whole together, but the infrastructure was failing us on a daily basis. So I was just talking to Josh about his ride over here this morning. You know, our city is failing to provide the space on the street for pedestrians, cyclists, and transit users. And it's been failing since the red car, which there's old tracks in the back here, was dismantled in so many ways. And so it really started with that for me. I got divorced and I found myself needing to slow down, get out of the car, and get reconnected to myself and my kid and my region. So that was as a member. And then Tamika Butler, who many of you know, she and I did a leadership workshop. We talked about the fact that our city was not a healthy place to raise people, that it is failing the folks who try to navigate it with outside of a car and a number of other conversations. And she encouraged me to apply for the position. And at the time I actually said no, because I was trying to reimagine the LA River as a transportation corridor from Canoga Park down to Long Beach as a bike superhighway. And that's been its own level of frustration and trying to reimagine that infrastructure. But that's really how I was sort of getting into this whole movement. And then when Tamika's successor left, I decided to put my hat in and I've been a part of the organization as a staff member, as executive director since 2019. How things have changed. I think the problem with bicycle advocacy is somewhat what Jimmy was talking about. It was not a broad enough coalition of different types of people who saw the same issues and challenges and problems in the region. And we weren't connecting ourselves to the larger ecosystem of issues of lack of access to dignified healthcare, work, housing, open space, recreational space, and how transportation is really about the connective tissue of allowing people to have that access. And so, I think what's changed is that there's now a much better coalition of folks who are now working together from different identities, from the pedestrian identity, from the transit rider identity, from the bicycle identity, from the parental identity. And I think that's what I'm seeing as the biggest change in my five years is that there's this growing, it's not consensus, but this sort of shared understanding that things have got to change in order for this region to become truly what it should be for all people, no matter what your zip code is, no matter what your job is. And that is a place that you can get around without fearing for your life. And as John said, without losing your shirt or your money in the process. 
So then the last thing I'll just share is that uh, part of my learning has been, I was just in Vienna studying their social housing, which is really, for the people of Eco Village, you are on the bleeding front end of reimagining what living is in an urban area. In Vienna, housing is a human right. It's decommodified. It is not a way to generate wealth. It's a way to generate community and health. And they understand that prioritizing more efficient shared living opportunities is how they can get to that place. And so over 60% of the residents of Vienna, which is like kind of a fancy city, it's like, really, this is all subsidized, affordable, sustained housing? It is, is because the government and the, and the community has agreed that they're going to collaborate and work together in a more shared type of a living experience to create those efficiencies and cut those costs. And the government has made that investment. And now, if you just saw the rankings, Vienna is ranked as the number one most livable place, not only in Europe, but in the globe. And they're usually in the top five. And I experienced that. And the thing about Vienna that makes it work is the transportation. It's the public transportation, it's the bike infrastructure, it's the pedestrian culture, it's the expectations that drivers have the highest responsibility to the safety of everybody on the street. At first, when I rode a bike in Vienna, it was like, people were just blowing through intersections and cars knew it was their responsibility to look out for folks that were on smaller vehicles or on foot. And I was terrified by seeing how they would just sort of assume that they had the right to be there, having ridden in this town for as long as I have with my kids. So I guess the point is that I see that there is a possibility for us to have that kind of experience with our families. There's a way of getting it done. And I think what's happening here in Eco Village, especially when it comes to the intersection between affordable housing and transportation, mobility, justice, there's something here that's really magic that we need to learn from and figure out how to scale. I guess I'll stop with that right now. And I also want to make sure that we talk about our Streets Action Committee at some point, which is an outcome of this movement of collaboration, our Streets Action Committee, but we'll get to that in a second. So, Josh. So, I think the big takeaway from Eli's speech is that we all need to get divorced. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, 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 there's an old Woody Allen line. I, never want to get married, I only want to get divorced. But, uh, anyway, that said, has anybody here ever read There Are No Accidents? You guys know that book? Yeah. Okay, we got one person. It's a really good read. Everybody should read it. It basically tells the story of how the things that lead people to get hurt became known as accidents. And the underlying premise in the story is that industrialists lobbied governments to sort of recharacterize studies and to pass laws that made it harder to go after the manufacturers of the machines that were actually hurting people. And the obvious one in the room being the car and the truck. And the book sort of talks about how car manufacturers lobbied governments at the municipal, state, federal level to pass laws that restricted the ways in which people could move around their cities. And, you know, of course, this is what led to the creation of the sidewalk and things like jaywalking, just the concept of jaywalking, not the behavior of jaywalking. And it talks about the first person who was recorded in a motor vehicle death, which was a kid in New York City who got run over by a truck. And the crowd 
circled the truck and took the driver out and beat him. And there was a term in that day called vehicle murder. And it was thought that people who died by motor vehicle were not just killed, they were murdered. So what happened? How did our perception of what streets were and who was allowed to be in them and how they were allowed to move change to the sense that when you're not in this steel expensive cage, you need to be hiding away in some corner of the street and you're not allowed to move freely on the street until some light tells you that it's okay to do so. And the obvious answer is industry lobbied the government. And that's where we are right now. We are at this point where we need to be addressing government. We need to be retaking government. We need to use the levers that government offers us to retake our streets and to make it safer to move about without a car. You know, watch Swingers. It's like this absurd scene where one person gets into each car and five cars drive two blocks to get to the next spot. We're all there. I'm preaching to the choir here. But what I see happening in LA right now is that First of all, we've got this huge, huge region with 89 municipalities. And ask yourself what it's like to ride a bike from Silver Lake down Santa Monica Boulevard to the actual beach, Santa Monica Beach, and how the street changes every time you enter a new municipality. You go from the city of Los Angeles into what we now call East Hollywood into Hollywood, both of which are city of LA, West Hollywood, and suddenly there are bike lanes. Beverly Hills, suddenly there's a bike lane. Century City, maybe a bike lane, I guess. Good luck if someone's distracted. And then into West LA, and then suddenly you pass the 405 and, and you're in the mix, right? And you're just scrambling, like trying to figure out, you know, don't rely on Apple Maps to tell you where to go, because they told me there was a bike lane on Vermont today. Oh. Which, there isn't, in case you're wondering. South of age. <laughs> well, I mean, this place is hidden away, and that's great, but I knew what roads to take better than my phone did. So that said, Bike LA is the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition, and it's a huge, huge area to cover for a very small 501c3, which, by the way, has limited capacity to lobby the government limited capacity to promote legislative means, limited capacity to actually endorse candidates who might advance our causes. So where does that leave us? That leaves a vacuum in that area, and Streets for All has taken up that issue. There are 501c4. Contributions to them are not tax deductible. And frankly, a lot of these organizations are relying on contributions by personal injury attorneys to advance their goals. And that's a tough spot to be in. I've been saying for 10 years, where's Trek? Where's Specialized? Where are people for bikes? And I know that Dave's in there and he's fighting the good fight. And I was on the board of Cal Bike for eight years and that's great. But I do think that we need a city of Los Angeles bike advocacy group the same way that Culver City has one and West Hollywood has one. You know, there's the central chapter of Bike LA, but that doesn't address Van Nuys, that doesn't address Sherman Oaks, Northridge, those are all city of LA. Don, I'm sure you've got war stories about trying to ride around in the valley. Those streets are all freeways. 
So that said, I do think that we have our harpoon in the wheel. I think that Healthy Streets did serve to advance the discussion among the city council. We finally got city council people who are standing up saying that we've been remiss in protecting the most vulnerable citizens of this city. But I think that we need, how shall I put this delicately? I think that we need a constructive conversation between the equity focused groups and the infrastructure focused groups. And there needs to be more dialogue between them. There needs to be more collaboration between them because Healthy streets might not be the best thing out there. It might not be perfect, but I think it needs to be on the table. I think that we need to tell government that we're willing to do whatever it takes to advance safety in the streets. So hope that I didn't talk too much. Yeah, it's, it's not that you talk too much, but you just answered the second and third questions we were going to ask next. And for the second part is we're going to juice our co-host Taylor. Hey everybody, I'm Taylor Nichols. And Josh teed it up perfectly for where we want to go from here. On Bike Talk, we did an interview recently about the writer's strike. And we interviewed one of the writers, and he talked so much about the community of the WGA, which they're losing, and they're afraid they're gonna lose with AI. And we compared that with the unity that we see and that we need in the bicycle movement. So. The next question that we want to get to is, while I think we've all seen a lot of growth in the last 10, 20 years, there's now bollards on the street, there's more bike lanes, or bike stripes, not even bike lanes. So we have seen some progress in the last 10 years, and there is a momentum now that we have. So where do we go from here is the question. And I think you teed it up perfectly with the two different organizations, one fighting for infrastructure, one fighting for equity but we have to have unity if we're gonna conquer the overwhelming forces that are keeping us from reaching our goal. John, you wanna start first? So where do we go from here? We have a lot of growth, we have a lot of momentum, so where do we go now? I think Josh said it, it's, it's all about power. If you boil it all down, and does all the air out of it in the water, it's all about power at the end of the day because building infrastructure means you need resources. And if you need resources, we have a limited amount, so you have to prioritize those resources. So at the end of the day, it's about having someone in City Hall, in the governor's office, in the state legislature, deciding budgets and questions that fund these kinds of projects, because it takes money and resources. So 100% it's about power. I will say this about equity. Well, let's define equity, right? Again, limited resources, that's the world we operate in. And so the equity is where do we put those resources? Where do we prioritize them? And so as a city, as a governor, as city hall, you gotta create a framework in which you decide what gets resourced first. So in the world of equity, oftentimes, I feel like people sort of say this is equity and this is the issue at hand, we gotta bring them together, which I do understand that. But at the same time, I will challenge that notion because equity is transportation. My 30 minute wait on a bus is related to your three hours stuck in traffic. There's a visceral connection between those two stories. And so equity impacts all of us. It's not just helping bus riders or those people over there or communities of color or low-income families or single mothers. I mean, those are all important populations we need to prioritize support as a just society. But again, by categorizing people in these certain buckets, this is my fear, is that we somehow then delink those two things. But again, transportation is all connected. Unless rich people end up getting their own helicopters and flying wherever they want on their own, then they're sort of dealing from all that. But all of us are in the same system. And so I really want to emphasize that the equity issue is all of our issue. 
it is not just something that is owned by certain nonprofits, but it should be owned by all of us. And so what we were talking about earlier about the Our Streets Action Committee, it's a coalition that's been forming of groups as Reciclos, LA Walks, Bike LA, Act LA, Ciclavia. And the idea is that we're coming together and we need to build some kind of cohesion when it comes to our demands on the city. And so what do we see in the future? Three things. If I were to consider this a successful sort of panel discussion, I would want you to leave with three things. These are the three things our city needs. And I would love for us to really mobilize and organize around that. First is we need accountability. So what do I mean by that? We have about four or five different agencies that touch our public right away. BOE, BSS, LADOT, LA Metro. All these different agencies are responsible for how we move, our infrastructure, but a lot of them don't talk to each other. And for advocates who have been doing this work far longer than I have, this is something that we all know about. Right? The city council system in itself mimics this kind of setup. It's one city, but we essentially have 15 different cities. Each council district kind of determines their infrastructure the way they want. And so we need accountability. And so an idea that we've been pushing is we need one department of mobility. Somehow bring these agencies together under one roof so there's accountability. Kevin Shin, who was at Bike LA, said, we need one throat to choke. And I think that is important. We need one throat to choke. So accountability. So that's the first one. The second, I would say, is equity, right? For this, I would say equity and prioritization. So we need to, as a city, understand what is it that we value and how do we put those values into our budgets. So when we're putting in a bike lane, when we're putting in bus lanes, what communities do we start first? The ones that have been most disinvested. So equity lens, figuring out the prioritization. That's the second one. And the third and final one I would say is implementation. You know, LA is the only major city in the US that doesn't have a capital infrastructure plan. Capital infrastructure plans, for those who don't know, is a very simple device major cities have when we have big capital projects, like our sidewalks, the airport, big construction projects. And the idea is a city needs to manage these projects because they're not done in a year. They're done through multiple years with billions of dollars. And so the idea is you create a timeline, you say these are the projects we're gonna focus on, this is how much money it's gonna cost, and this is where we're gonna get the money, and we're gonna build it within X number of years. It's pretty much a planning schedule for the city. But LA City does not have one at all. We do our budgets on a yearly basis. That's why when we have projects, we can have all the best ideas, but then we have to find funding for it, right? The, the staff have to go out and actually apply for grants to fund the very projects we're talking about. And so it's this dissonance between what we value and are we putting in systems within city government to actually fulfill these duties. And so implementation, a capital infrastructure plan. So a department of mobility, a one throat to choke, a capital infrastructure plan, and a very clear equity lens in which we decide what we prioritize as a city that dictates all of our projects. Because right now you have different agencies sort of have their own sort of lens of prioritization. So if we were to say with the future of LA, it would be those three. So thanks John for breaking down our Streets Action Committee's three major policy priorities. But I want to say that these policy priorities actually are aligned with Healthy Streets LA. They're just more long-term. They're about systemic reform. So Healthy Streets LA is a mechanism, for those of you who've really studied it, that would allow residents to sue the city for not implementing its own mobility plan 2035. It's a great talking point. It's right on the money. We think it's a good idea. However, it doesn't address the systemic issues that prevent the infrastructure from being developed. We had a meeting at Union Station, Don was there not so long ago, where we talked about the rule of 15, where each of the council districts currently is given the exact same amount of resources in their street repaving program to fix their streets. But we all know that not all 15 council districts are created equal. They're not all the same. And so the fact that they've got this very gross, not 
nuanced way of distributing or allocating funds and resources and plans to those 15 districts is part of the reason why we have this gridlock. Also, without a CIP, as John said, there's nothing in the mobility plan 2035 that's connected to an actual budget. So while it's a great plan, it's something that looks good that you can pull off the shelf, when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of trying to get that thing funded and implemented, we have to start at scratch of finding money. We have Valley DOT people applying for grants at the ATP or all these crazy systems because it's not directly connected to our annual budget. And a CIP is a three to five year minimum that would set up the runway to actually get some work actually done at scale so that we don't have these issues that Josh has, as he was describing, riding towards the beach. He's got no infrastructure. Then that bike lane is bike lane to nowhere. It drops off and he's out in the street in the wilds. Then there's some infrastructure. Then there's different types of infrastructure. The lane size, there's no coherence to the entire system, which puts cyclists, pedestrians, and transit users at risk and also makes it harder for drivers to get around. So again, it's about creating long-term systemic reforms that's what OSAC is really focused on, and Healthy Streets LA can be a great stepping stone to that. We just met with Michael and Yuval to talk about how Healthy Streets LA is a step along the way to potentially get these larger systemic changes to happen. And so, again, this is part of a continuum. There's an immediate need. There are lives being lost today that could be avoided if the city was able to do its own mobility plan. And I don't mean to sound cynical, and I'm hardly the first person to be called cynical, but I just don't believe that the current system itself is set up to actually implement that plan without these bigger reforms. And so that's what we're really after. It's going to take us some time and we need everybody to organize around the longer vision. Well, the reason I gave the mic over to these guys is they're much more informed uh, on the deep technicalities that it does take to actually engage government, engage policy, and engage initiatives to make them reality. For my part of it, and Reciclos, where we come from is from the street up, from the ground up, and engage with the folks who are much more technically there. So, emotionally speaking, when I look at, like, hey, let's get a bunch of bike lanes out there, it's, it's one way to look at how you fund something, and it's something you're funding. You're funding a freeway, you're funding a bike lane, you're funding a crosswalk, which is an inanimate thing. But when we look at equity, you're not funding a bike lane. What you're funding are people, right? You're actually funding how someone gets to school safely, how someone gets to work safely, what opportunities those communities have to actually make the place better. And it's easy to see and think that a bike lane will do that, but ultimately, we don't actually need bike lanes, really. What we need is infrastructure for people. And if we have more money, more funding, more attention for the people, who knows, maybe a whole car lane goes away, and we call that a bike lane, right? Because it's focused on people. So when I look at equity and how that's important, it doesn't just say, hey, let's build some structure thing, some cement thing. It's like, let's save a human life, a whole community's life here, and that's where we pull money from. And obviously working with governments is the harder part for them to see that. But there's plenty of examples around the world where that is actually happening right now. Josh? One thing I would say is that I sue the government all the time for people <laughs> who get hurt. And that honestly is a tension between the implementation of this infrastructure because people in the city have said that no single lawyer has done more for and against protected bike infrastructure than me because people call me when they get hit in a dangerous intersection 
and a lot of times the drivers are uninsured or it's a hit and run or there's some kind of situation where you've got to make this person whole and the only pockets to go after are those of the taxpayers and the government is on notice that they've got a dangerous intersection. I mean, there's a section of fountain where it connects to Hyperion around the corner from my office that I have nicknamed Collarbone Alley because there have been so many cases where my clients' front wheels have lodged in those expansion joints and they endo and it's like, okay, we've got another collarbone case on fountain and the city still has not repaired it. And I just don't understand. I don't understand why they would rather pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawsuits for this one section of road where there's a school, it's on the high injury network. Anyway, don't get me started. Got me started. And where do we go from here? I mean, really, it goes back to my previous comment, which is just that I think that, frankly, we need funding. There needs to be more money behind this movement. And I don't know where that money comes from because it's not like Specialized or Trek can fund any of these movements the way GM and Exxon have. That's who we're up against. We are up against major fossil fuel companies and car companies. They're all starting to feel it, I think, the switch to electric and the other things that are going on. But, you know, the reality is that they're still a lot better funded than we are. And I don't know what the gap filler is. I think one thing is we need to be better organized. We need to be more connected. So we're up against opposition that is better funded, better organized, better resourced, and frankly, it's just easier for them. And in so many ways, battle is metaphoric and literal that it is uphill for us. So we need to be connecting with each other more. We need to be connecting with bike shops. Bike shops are clubhouses. Every time I walk into a bike shop, I can't get out of there before a half hour just because you're talking about bikes. You're hanging out with the homies. Everybody, you know, somebody walks in, a racer, a mechanic, some guy who just loves bikes. You know, it's like we all love this thing. And yet, what happens when we walk away from each other? Where is that connective tissue? So that's what we need. We need organization, connection, outreach, funding, these kinds of things. Before I pass it on to Seamus Garrity for the third part, I want to say thanks for all that, you guys. On Bike Talk, because it all comes back to Bike Talk, because that is what connects all of us, is we've been talking a little bit about incrementalism versus going for broke. And we had Charles Komanoff, who is a bike advocate and leader in New York on last week, and he talked about those two different approaches. Do you do an incremental approach or do you go for broke on your approach? And he broke it down really well, I thought. He said, the government has to go for broke. They have to do big projects and see them through. But bike advocates take whatever you can get. If it's an incremental bike strike on a street, take it and you'll build from there. And I think if we can stick together and have unity, we can find those low-hanging fruit moments and build a better city. And you're Seamus. Seamus Garrity, co-host of Bike Talk, friend of several of you. I worked in government for six years, working for Assemblymember Laura Friedman. And legislation would pass 
the assembly would pass both houses only to be vetoed by Jerry Brown or Gavin Newsom, reckless driving legislation, speed camera enforcement, things like that that have opposition from places you just don't see coming. And so I guess what I want to ask and what I think is important for us is to have a vision to work towards. What do we want our city and our county and our state really to look like when it's done? When is it safe? I was almost killed in this intersection by a truck turning left. I ride sort of unsafely, so I take responsibility for that. But this is like right next to this place and across from the school, a block from a major metro stop, and it's not safe at all. So how do we utilize these resources? How do we allow kids to walk safely to that metro stop? Because it's not safe to cross Vermont at any of these intersections. So what does the city look like when it's safe for kids, for everybody, to get out of cars, to walk, to ride their bike, to use forms of transportation that are not cars? What does it actually look like? So I guess I'm relatively new bicycle person compared to many people here. I want to say that I'm like a product of the work that Bike LA and Bicycle Kitchen that Jimmy co-founded. So I got involved with Bicycle Kitchen like eight years ago because I wanted a cheap bike and I looked up used bikes and then I found Bicycle Kitchen and I went to their website and it was like, we're not a shop. You get to learn how to build up your bike and make a donation and take it. And then I did it and it was just so fun. And it was such an easy entry to bicycle life. And I'm just this office worker, like eight hours, nine hours in front of a monitor. And then at night, I turned into this bike mechanic. And then I get to learn more about bikes and bicycle people and meet all these people that I never would have met. And then at night, I become like explorers of the city. And the night rides in LA are so nice. You can go anywhere and in a group, it's even more fun and safer. And that's what I see for the future of LA. Bike LA has really great safety courses for beginners. And my friends are beginning to like get involved into bicycle for the first time. And then one thing they tell me is that, oh, I'm so afraid to go on the streets. And then I just tell them, hey, take these courses or it's online or it's in person. And I wish there were less barriers and more safety infrastructure there so that people are not afraid to just go out of their apartment and just take a joyride around the block even. What they do is they have packed their bike into a car, drive to some bike-only places, and then they have so limited places that they can ride on. But everything was there even little by little. It means that I get to enjoy the streets with my friends more and more. And that's the vision that I have and I want to support. Peter Choi, Bike Kitchen Board Member. So first and foremost, I think the vision for myself is that individually owned automobiles, I don't care how you fuel them, if you use mushrooms, if you use electrical, if you use fossil fuel, they just simply do not exist as a way for people to get around, period. That's the vision of LA. And I know it's hard for a lot of people to envision that because we've had a hundred years of infrastructure to make that a reality, sold to us everywhere. When we wake up, it's in our face. At the movies, it's in our face. What is it, the Fast and Furious 10's out, right? We got three more coming up. Like, it's a reality in our consciousness. We need to absolutely change the way that narrative ends up because we know the consequences. One thing was into Adonia, one of the podcasting she was talking about, the red car. 
and we have this feeling that the red car was this amazing egalitarian thing, but even that thing was not based in equity. That thing was made to get people who could afford to live in one place to another place. It wasn't actually made for everybody. So whatever the vision of the place is that it starts there. It starts with the person with the least amount of means, with the least amount of even ability, and get them to be comfortable to getting around. Recently, my partner and I went to New York City, and all we did was just ride subways. That's all we did, and couldn't take the smile off my face, because it was just like everybody was there. Everybody was there, whether you're a lawyer, or whether you're a messenger, you're in the same space, and there is equity that is not palpable in LA. What you get in LA, you get people inside these boxes, and you're not together. You're just not together that way. Even if you stuff four of you in there, you're still not together. That's the difference between a bus. That's the difference between a sidewalk. That's the difference between people biking around. And a really strong vision came to me. It's a little hard to talk about, but I was biking <laughs> in a very privileged way in Europe with my kid, and we're walking from Amsterdam to The Hague. And we're just biking down this wonderful road. We Googled the route and it said like 60 miles of bike facility with 0.03 miles of no facility. Be careful. I'm like, that's the opposite of my experience. So there we go. And sure enough, it was incredible, right? I get to this one part. It's a park. It's a pond. There's forests. And I just broke down crying because I had to travel thousands of miles to give my kid the basic, simple, human right to walk out your door and go play and not fear to be killed by a car. That was the reality right there and then. And I just apologized to my kid for five minutes for having that not be the reality he grew up in, right? And he was very graceful, he was very cool. But that's the reality I see. And I'll say one thing to connect dots before we leave. And it's one thing that kind of came to me in a moment. It's around funding. And funding is really, really, really obviously number one right now. One parking spot costs us fifty, sixty thousand dollars to make, and there's five or six of those for every car out here. A lot of people have several cars. You look at buildings down the street over here that are multi-story tall, and half of it is there for car parking next to a metro. And again, whether it's fueled by electrical or fueled by mushrooms, it's still a carbon footprint on our planet, so we just get away from that. We talk about the eco-village and what that means, why we're here. And to share my story that Peter talks about, when I started the bicycle kitchen in that little small kitchen, I can go outside on Tuesday night and I would know every bicyclist out there in Hollywood, in downtown, in the area. I'd say, see you Tuesday, we're gonna make pizza, we're gonna talk bikes. Within two years of that happening, I went on a night ride with 2,000 people. I didn't know anybody that night. And I'm like, wow, we actually did something. Where there was no culture around bicycles, two years later, there was a culture. It was fueled by love, by tacos, by beer, by having a good time out there together and taking up car space. And it was incredible. Now, why did that happen? Because Lois Arkin, she was able to find some funding at some point along the way. In 93, was able to get that funding and put it toward a building. And that bicycle kitchen was free to me and free to anybody else to go use as long as you're doing a good public service. By extension, our housing at the Eco Village is actually quite affordable, almost too affordable, because there was foundation money that allowed that to happen for other folks to work, right? Now we're looking at this place called Reciclos, called Songs, 
And again, there was funding that came back to it and created sustainable ways to engage with the things we're trying to do here, whether it's mycelium remediation of bicycles or this talk right here. All to say that in a weird way, what Lois provided was foundational money. She didn't see it that way, she's a nonprofit, but it's a metaphor, okay? So, where's the money though? Where's the money, right? We've got federal grant money coming down, there's a lot of it, right? But we gotta engage with that money. And that money is engaged through other money, and that's philanthropy, as far as I'm concerned. There are foundations with a ton of money that was made off the backs of black and brown people all over the world, which actually is our money. And I feel like we need to just keep connecting with anyone who's got that kind of foundational money to help us, the communities, work with getting more federal grant money to change the landscape of this city and become the model city they want to be. A place where my kid and your kids can go outside and go play at a park and not be threatened to be killed in the process. So, that's mine. I just want to actually pick up on Jimmy's comment about money. There's an example that's proven successful in California. It's the tobacco tax, right? We as a state acknowledge a health crisis. People were dying of cigarettes, teen smoking was high, and so what do we do? We passed three different tobacco taxes in California. The most recent was Prop 56 a few years back. It was $2 tax on cigarettes. But what do we do with that money? We took all that money and we funded local community groups to do education to the public about the harms of tobacco use, passing laws like smoking bans in parks, smoking bans in restaurants. Remember people used to smoke in restaurants? Right? Airplanes. But it took... Exactly. Bars. There we go. But it took a public effort acknowledging it and then taxing ourselves and resourcing that money into community programs to pass local jurisdiction laws. And it's because of the small laws we passed in the smaller cities, eventually California banned now menthol cigarettes, which is kind of mind-blowing, right? People thought that was impossible. So in a similar way, there are similar structures in transportation, the gas tax, congestion pricing. There's different mechanisms that we can think of and then bring that money into communities. And so we don't have to be reliant on foundations or the pockets of wealthy people, but actually commit public dollars for a public health crisis, which is that every 36 hours an Angelino is killed in a car crash. So that's what my vision of the future on a policy level is something like that. For me, I agree with everything some of my colleagues up here said. For a city as liberal as LA, as blue, democratic as Los Angeles, when it comes to investing in public spaces, we might as well be like end-stage capitalism, I think someone said here. Because our public spaces are really shitty, unless you go to a shopping mall by Caruso. And I'm saying that so sarcastically, but... So for me, a future is a city, a government, a state that invests in good parks, good metro stations, good sidewalks, Libraries are like palaces. I was a Russian studies major and I lived abroad in Russia and I did a lot of study of like the Soviet era and they invested in these things. They had all these beautiful drawings too of like what could be a children's palace, what could be a place for libraries, what could be a place for fountains and plazas. And I think we need to invest in those kind of places here in Los Angeles because it's a public health crisis, I feel. And we want to be able to access that as a community, be able to get there on bike, on foot, on transit. So my future would be places where we really value our public spaces and lift them up as not only just space, but places for healing and for community building. Yeah, I want to just jump on and try to, first of all, say, when you're talking about getting people into positions of leadership to actually execute on these policies and change the direction of how we are governed, you should take a look at John Yee. I'm sorry to do this, but he's running for office. That's a really hard barrier to cross. And so if you live in this area, and I'm not speaking as a 51C3, I'm speaking as a member of the community, as just Eli. We need to elect people who are actually going to follow through with these incredibly important needs to do these systemic changes. 
I want to answer a little bit of what Seamus asked, because I don't know if we touched on it. The difference between incremental approach versus systemic, larger approach. And I feel like it's going to sound like a cop-out, Seamus, but you got to do both. You have to have your sunset for alls. You have to have your Bionic Creek bike paths. You have to have your individual streets that have an organized and loud and vibrant community that's supporting it. You have to have that grassroots local action. But you can't really make massive change or meaningful change unless you have these larger policy systemic changes that are also in the works simultaneously. So you got to work both in the near game and the long game. One or the other is not going to get it done. Just an immediate sort of reaction to the current system is not going to actually upend the system and create the future that we all deserve. And living in the future of this sort of utopic idea, and I'll tell you what my utopic idea is in a minute, is also not going to happen until we can start showing proof of concept by showing streets that actually are human-centered, that allow cyclists, pedestrians, and transit riders to get around and to be an example of what it could be at a larger level. So we need both is the answer. And I'm afraid that it's going to take all the funding that John and Jimmy and Josh are talking about because those are two very different fronts, right? The immediate incrementalism and the long-term systemic changes. My vision for LA is inspired by what's happening in Paris and Melbourne and some of these other cities. You may have heard of it. It's called the 15-minute city. The concept of a 15-minute city is that all your essential needs are within 15 minutes of walking or biking or transit, period. You get access to food, you get access to education, to healthcare, and to dignified work within 15 minutes of where you're at. And if you don't meet that standard, your city is failing you. Your region is failing you. The big issue with LA is VMTs, vehicle miles traveled. The fact that the average Angelino has to travel between 60 minutes and like 90 minutes round trip to get to their place of work, to drop off their kids, to get themselves the care that they need is a travesty. And so what we need to do is we need to reimagine our region in 15 minute spaces so that Everybody who lives within that zone has access to what they need, walking, biking, or transit. Now, that's an impossibly big systems change for where we are today, right? But if you look at Eco Village, since we're here today, everything that they need is within reach, whether it's food, community, transportation. This is a design community that is valuing the health and wellness of its residents over everything else. And until we start prioritizing our larger Los Angeles in the same kind of thinking, we're going to be stuck in this cycle of violence, in the cycle of despair, in the cycle of real inequity, right? It's about creating 15-minute pods or cities with neighborhoods that allow folks to live and be their full size and live good, healthy lives. So that would be my vision for the future of LA. And I'm all about trying to get there one step at a time. So everything all these guys said, Agreed. I can bring my own perspective as a tort lawyer and talk about the legal framework that I think also needs to go into effect, which is that we need laws that protect people and we need laws that shift the burden from the individuals taking their lives in their own hands, getting around the city to the public. And some of those laws are already in effect, as I talked about, because you know, economists talk about externalities, right? What numbers are we bringing into the equation when we consider what math we're doing? And the cost is being borne, right? There's always a cost. There's a cost of moving people around. And when you move them around in cars, there's a cost because we're paying for that in fighting fires, in dealing with climate change adaptation. But 
We're also dealing with the cost of what it does to a human body and to the family of that person and to the community surrounding that family when that body is damaged or destroyed. And that's my job is to bring that cost back to the taxpayers when that happens. But what I would like to see is an ounce of prevention instead of a pound of cure. And what that means is that things like political courage from our elected leaders to take on the insurance industry and the NIMBYs who say, what are you talking about? Why should there be a rebuttable presumption that when there is a vehicle versus bicycle, or vehicle versus pedestrian crash, should there be a rebuttable presumption that the driver of the vehicle was at fault? They have that in the Netherlands. What are you talking about? That's insane. Just why should we do that here? But it's a very effective way of making drivers pay attention, is to say, when this crash happens, you have the burden of proving that it wasn't your fault. The pedestrian doesn't have to prove that you were at fault. You have to prove that you were not at fault. That is low-hanging fruit, and we need elected leaders that are going to pass that, and they're going to stand up to drivers and GM and Exxon, who are really going to be the, the funders of the movement against that. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of thing. Those are letters in the law. They're so easy to change, right? It's so easy to do that. You don't have to build infrastructure. You don't have to spend money on that. Somebody can just write that on a piece of paper, and it can change a lot. So first of all, that. Second of all, when, so just curious, how many people out here have a car? Okay, I have a car, actually. You know, like, you can't always bike everywhere, right? So you have to have car insurance if you have a car, right? So what you should have is you should have uninsured motorist bodily injury coverage on your car insurance because if someone else hits you with their car while you're driving, while you're biking, while you're walking, and that person is at fault, if that person hits and runs, which 10 years ago there were 50,000 hit and runs in LA every year, I don't know how many there are now, but hits and runs, or if they don't have insurance, which a lot of people don't, believe it or not, we've all seen that car that you don't want to get hit by, right? You're like those two stone kids with smoke wafting out of their windows. Like those are not the guys you want to get hit by because they don't have insurance or they don't have enough insurance. They only have 15,000 in coverage, which is the state minimum. You turn to your own car insurance to cover your medical bills, your lost wages, your pain and suffering, your future care. If someone needs to bathe you, that's not medical insurance that pays for that, right? So you need to have it, it's indispensable, even if you don't bike, because we're all pedestrians at some point. We all cross the street at some point. We should all have it, and if you don't own a car, you can get a non-operator's policy. AAA sells 500,000 in non-operator's bodily injury, uninsured motorist coverage. Anyway, so that said, that's my lens. I'm looking at it as where's the low-hanging fruit? What are the laws that we can change? And who's going to stand up to those companies? Thank you very much, and we invited Joe Linton to be on the panel, editor of Streets Blog Los Angeles, an eco-villager, and co-founder of LACBC. So that's what this is all about. It's about how this place was the breeding ground for so many important LA bike advocacy institutions, LACBC, Bike Kitchen, and Ciclovia. Joe, 
another of the giants upon whose shoulders we're standing today. And now, speaking of giants, we have Don Ward. The giant. Uh, early co-host. We have Chicken Leather. Be remiss not to mention Chicken Leather, who was there at the beginning of Bike Talk, Kill Radio. So Don's going to take the question. Okay, so we're going to do the question and answer portion. My name is Don Ward, co-host of Bike Talk. Okay, do we have questions from the audience? What y'all think of Vision Zero? What happened to it? Are we gonna have to reinvent it again? Because that was a big push. But now that there's new administration, it seems it's evaporating. What is Vision Zero? Okay, question about Vision Zero. Okay, real quickly. Vision Zero is a policy a lot of cities and governments have taken on, and the idea is that you have a vision to reduce traffic fatalities to zero. The fact that I have to explain it shows the branding mistake of whoever thought of Vision Zero. To give you an example, in Korea, I've seen marketing material made by cities about Vision Zero, and in Korean, it's Bijeon Zero. So it's transliterated, and so you have to translate it and then actually explain it. So you got multiple layers, and so for me, Vision Zero, just even the name alone itself, I think is flawed. The idea that you measure dignity on the street based on whether you die or not, like that is the metric we're using. I think there's so much shade in between of your experience on the street. That's not whether you live and die. There's dignity, there's joy, there's pleasure, there's so much. So I think Vision Zero is clearly made by someone who drives. Yeah. The fact that that is how we're going to measure what street safety is. And so it's a failed policy. It's failed not only in the branding, but also with the way it's implemented here in Los Angeles. It's not funded enough. Every single council district gets to do whatever Vision Zero means to them. So there's no real even cohesion about what the strategy is. So it's a failed policy. I'd rather have a city government say that our vision is to reduce bus waits by 30 minutes and reduce time stuck in traffic by 15 minutes. Like, let, let's use those metrics that actually are tangible to your day-to-day -day life. And so for me, I think we need to really rethink Vision Zero, get rid of all together, and have a new sort of policy framework to do this. Okay, next question. Yes. So I was really curious in understanding what is the Take that, Eli. Yes. So the question is, what is the connection between urban designers and landscape architects in the types of infrastructure that are put in? So I'll just start off by saying the LA Department of Transportation is woefully understaffed right now. In fact, we just sent a letter again demanding that they properly resource. They have something like 18 positions that have been unfilled for the past five years that need to be filled with these types of experts in street design and urban design planning and in creating the right kind of landscape architecture to wrap around our infrastructure. And so LADOT itself is woefully understaffed and that's a huge problem in terms of actually implementing these plans that keep on getting created every so often. For one of our projects called Sunset for All, we actually crowdfunded over $65,000 to hire our own street engineer to start to even explore what would be possible. Not to be prescriptive, but to just to sort of do the types of studies that are required. The initial engineering done, what was possible in this 3.2 mile corridor along Sunset Boulevard. Because we got so frustrated waiting for the city itself to develop their own plan, or to actually start to measure and engineer what was possible. And our goal was to then hand this initial planning and a bunch of public engagement with faith-based organizations, PTA, local residents, business owners, to show the will of the people wanted this, plus the engineering plans, hand it to DOT and say, okay, you got coverage from the people, you're not gonna experience bike lash or people against this because we've already done that public engagement 
and we have some initial ideas about what's actually possible. So we went through that whole process and even that process has taken four years when we've done a lot of the footwork. And so the answer is not enough. And so if you happen to be in that field and you want to contribute to making the streets healthier, safer, more equitable and sustainable for people, then I would recommend that you connect with one of us here because we need that help. And also when the time comes, we need to be joining letter writing campaigns and making noise about the fact that DOT needs to properly resource their staffs to do the work that they're supposed to be doing. I kind of had a follow-up question on that LADOT and staff. And my experience advocating and dealing with LADOT, they have a staff of engineers and they're focused on car stuff because that seems like what their education background is. But when this Vision Zero thing came along, LADOT decided to add staff to implement more street designs, if I'm understanding correctly and they needed to hire a Vision Zero team. But it was sort of like, well, the current car-centric guys, they're educated, can they do it? Is it that they've lost people and there's no car-centric staff left? Or it just seemed like, why are we adding more staff when you just tell these guys to redirect their focus? So it's a great question. My understanding is that even the car-centric engineers and DOT are overwhelmed by the amount of design that's needed. I'm not making excuses. That's still a prioritization that I disagree with fundamentally, but first of all, they're not tuned up or educated enough to be able to think about holistic design that includes pedestrians, bicyclists, and transit riders enough. And they're overwhelmed by that. And plus, what's going on with where their priorities are? They keep on trying to expand the 710 freeway. We've been hearing about this for years. What we've learned in LA is we increase the size of the pipe, and what do we do? We just fill it with more cars. And now we have these eight to 12 lane freeways and they're still impacted by traffic. And so if we haven't learned the lesson over the past 20, 30 years that just making the pipe bigger is gonna be the solution to prevent traffic, the data says that this is not the way to approach it. We need to do systems change. We need to do mode shift away from the single occupancy car. And that means that we need to create the space on the street for other modalities, including walking, biking, and transit. And there's too much energy trying to like plug the finger in the dike so it doesn't just these sort of a band-aid types of ideas of expanding a currently broken system that continues to fail. Next question. Go ahead. So there's a kind of premise that's been going on in Europe to get things done where they kind of get a bunch of bikes on the road and they slow bike. And basically the idea is we're gonna bring a disruption to the people in the cars and we're gonna attach this to a demand, and some of the people who do this will maybe be risking some sort of misdemeanor sort of arrest. And we're gonna do this to try to push a very clear demand that is gonna get us towards the kinds of things we need to make a sustainable, equitable life that we need in a city. I guess my question would be for you guys, does that kind of working together to kind of take over the streets, make some disruption, make some demands, makes sense to y'all and would you be interested in talking about it or is this something that just is like no that would be too ugly for how we want to do all the other things we have to do i want to answer that a little bit myself actually as a organizer of midnight riders midnight riders did that it was based on fun and it looked to the government like a protest because you get a thousand bike riders clogging up a thing but there was a lot of people in the community, LACBC and various advocacy groups and people that were government-minded 
that reached out to the government. And I think that the city kind of recognized that and that did change things. People sort of looked at it from the side of like, okay, these guys are just having fun. They're not trying to necessarily destroy the government or whatever, but it was a disruption and it led to a lot of things like Ciclovia and a lot of membership in various advocacy organizations. People got motivated it's still happening out there. There's still rides like Block Boy Fame out on the West Side. Thousand people riding through the streets. So I actually think that those direct actions can be really effective. Die-ins is another example that's been used as a tactic, taking over streets. Mm -hmm. I think that they are good flashpoint interventions. They're good ways of sudden awareness, creating passion can be harnessed to effect. But I think it's gotta be like the same answer to incremental versus long-term. We've gotta have a more diverse quiver of different things that we're doing. So for example, another thing that I think is really missing here is, have you heard of these things in Europe that are called traffic gardens? They create these beautiful gardens where kids learn how to ride bikes, cross streets, and even in these pedal cars, figure out how to navigate in a car. So in Europe, they actually invest in training and teaching people how to be good neighbors on the street. It's like part of the curriculum, it's part of the culture. So now you have got kids who are being introduced to what it means to cross the street, how to do it safely, how to do it aware, how to ride your bike in a way that's appropriate and friendly to other types of road users. Can you imagine a garden that's like a playground for how people use different modalities, how they get around in this city? So there's an education piece that I would say that has to go hand in hand with the direct action kind of protests. And then there's also the policy piece that, that we have to be attacking in all three fronts, which is exhausting to think about. But again, I think a direct action thing, a great flashpoint, but then how do we maintain that level of energy to really make a change? I'd like to jump on that too because I guess Josh, my question for you is, was your question, what would we fight for? Was that the question? Yes, one thing would be, is there, were there a set of demands would be great as a flashpoint? And that's one of the questions. The other one is just, yeah, would you want to be able to say, when you come to something, oh, you know what, let's call up XRLA as well. Yeah. And we'll help organize along and with you all doing those kinds of things. So. I think your question highlights the tension between the Streets for All slash Healthy Streets entity and the OSAC group of entities. And as a former Bike LA board, the behind the scenes sort of view was we need to be specific about what our expectations are with the government and that these die-ins are cool and critical mass and all those kinds of things. They can be effective, but I think that if there's one takeaway that we can have about the October surprise with Nuri Martinez and Gil Cedillo and everybody was that the city council doesn't always deal in good faith. And I think that we relinquish the ballot measure at our peril. And I think we also relinquish collaboration with other equity-based groups at our peril. And that the tension in this community is deciding what our vision is, right? Deciding what our expectations are from the government and deciding what means we're gonna to use to achieve those goals. And we are kind of in a bit of a reckoning right now, I think, where we're all sort of, we're trying to forge our path forward. Healthy Streets is gonna be on the ballot in 2024. And it's imperfect and it's got teeth. Whether it would pass judicial review is another question, and there are a whole host of legal issues that I have questions about myself. But it's only a threat if the city doesn't actually implement the mobility plan, right? 
if they implement the mobility plan, then there's no reason to sue the city. So how do we do that? And also, frankly, I was gathering signatures for Healthy Streets on some of these Rafa rides at 6.30 on Wednesday morning with my little clipboard and my messenger bag and walking up to these guys on $6,000 bikes saying, hey, how do you feel about Heinz's petition about forcing the city to implement 1,500 miles of protected bike lanes? And they were all on board. We got 100,000 signatures. And I think that that is also a message for the bike advocacy community, that if there is a specific goal, because I was a board member of Bike LA, and when I said, hey, do you want to join Bike LA? They were like, eh, Bike LA, like, eh, I don't know, bike, I'm Biking LA. So there are all these people out there, there's all this untapped potential. But I think what really motivates people is some mechanism that holds the city to task. And I think your question really brings that tension into focus, which is how do we get people on board? What are we asking the city to do exactly? And how do we do that? So I think that's our thread that ties this all together. Okay, we have eight minutes on Bike Talk, which is now live on KPFK. He was next. I was wondering if it would make sense to work toward getting electric bicycles subsidized. And the way you can do that is look at the enormous amount of money going to Elon Musk and other people for electric cars, but none for electric bicycles. So I think a lot of people would like to have an electric bicycle, especially old folks like me. The good news is, actually, I just did an interview with Jared Sanchez from CalBike, policy director of CalBike. And there is a program that's coming online slowly to get e-bike rebates. So it's great. What's happening in Pasadena? Yeah, there's pilot programs that are happening, and then there's one for the state level that they're piloting. Lois. I have two issues that I advocate for whatever opportunity I have, and I should make a lot more opportunities to do it. One is, to get to the World Trade Center, to put an international limit on the number of vehicles that can be manufactured on the planet. With those ratios going back to the car companies in proportion to their environmental records, rights records, and so forth. The second item that I advocate for is that we actually have limits on the number of cars that can be registered in geographically discrete areas with extraordinarily high penalties for violating. So those are legislative issues that are way beyond me. But I keep thinking, some days, someone I talk to is going to have those kind of connections, and we're going to start making it happen. Could be John Yee if he gets elected for 54? 54. Do you want to answer that? We're talking about limits on Number machines, limits on vehicles that can be manufactured, yeah. International. I mean, as a state, we decided that we're not going to be producing gas-powered vehicles, I think, what, 20, what was the year? So there's some iterations of it, so why not? Probably. Okay, question? Yeah. I loved your idea. I called the zones. We are in a zone here, a bike zone, I can tell you all the reasons why. But I know it, you don't have to have a car here, it works wonderfully. I started to identify four or five other zones around the city that are contiguous. Let's identify zones and streets and pathways for a livable city. Let's identify four or five bike zones. College campuses are a great example. 
College campus is going to be a complete pedestrian, and we have models of it that work. Exactly. That's why not? The old street grids, the pre-car era street grids of Los Angeles, are great places to start because there's so much infill street, major quarter mile long block type streets that surround these little old neighborhoods. Like this neighborhood right here. This was a red car neighborhood. The street grid is small. It's walkable. A zone is from here to La Brea, the Trader Joe's in La Brea, up to Hollywood, down to the Expo Station, down on USC campus, and downtown LA. That's what it's I call it. That makes total sense. And that's an old street grid. That's a very walkable street and grid. We could have four or five of those zones. There are other areas in Hollywood that would work in Totally. Yeah. Great idea. Okay, what do we got? Two minutes? Yeah. Closing statements. Let's do that. Let's start with Peters. It's kind of great to see everyone here, and there's so much passion here. And one thing I'm really grateful about this bicycle community is that there's just so much diversity. I'm exposed to all these new people that I would have never met if I wasn't plugged into the community like that. And I hope that through legislation or even just for fun, through things like that or small events or big events, I hope that we can find more freedom through the bicycle community and advocacy or even just to hang out. It's something we can really have easily. I'll say the Bike Kitchen is an amazing community space and the Bike Kitchen, like the Eco Village, owns the land. That's so important in Los Angeles with this crazy rent and all this type of stuff. So it's amazing what the Bicycle Kitchen has built. Josh. Please remain engaged. Stay involved. Don't give up. Things happen in fits and starts. Make friends with people that share your values. Make phone calls to your elected officials, not just to complain about stuff. Call them to thank them for doing good stuff. They need that, especially at the municipal level. They need to hear from us that we're glad that they did X, Y, and Z. They need to know that somebody's got their back because look at what's happening in South Pass. Look at what's happening in Culver City. You've got NIMBYs that are very outspoken, very well-resourced, and they're reversing gains. So celebrate gains, make gains happen, make friends with your local bike shop, go in there and tell them that you're involved in advocacy, tell them that they need to care too, and that it benefits their bottom line for them to be involved in advocacy. And we can't just do this if we're fighting GM and all these companies you know, let's face it, we are the underdogs, so we need to engage in dialogue with people who have different views than you do. And that doesn't just include people on the other side of bike advocacy. That includes people who are on the same side of bike advocacy, but disagree about the means we need to use to reach our ends. Eli? Yeah, so again, thanks for having me. It's really been great to be a part of this conversation. I always learn so many good things from these types of community moments. For me, it's really about, let's just keep the long view. I really feel like there's impatience and there's a lot of frustration that we've all suffered, that we all deal with on a constant basis, on a lived experience basis, but to not lose sight of the bigger goals. This is what the 15-minute city is about. It's really about imagining a Los Angeles that is truly what it could be with this Mediterranean climate, with the fact that so many of us live in the flats where there is a very little elevation gain that we have to deal with to get around by foot or by bike. It's about keeping an eye on the larger ideas and not losing patience with that. I really feel like that's a critical thing that we have to help support each other through. And the other thing I would just say is that back to that incremental versus systemic battle, right? We have to identify those specific neighborhoods, those specific streets. We have to fight on those streets. 
and on those neighborhoods, but we also have to think about the larger systemic issues that are preventing change at scale. And so, again, it has to do with keeping that long view and being supportive of each other, even if we do disagree at times. So I agree with what Josh said 100%, and I'll hand it to John. I don't have much to add. Vote and donate and volunteer for a local nonprofit. Thank you all. Boom. Thanks, everybody. Bike Talk, KPFK. We're going to hand it back over to Nick to take us out. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you, panel.